This is the Incubator and the Neonatology Review Podcast. We are your study buddies for neonatology topics. I'm Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova Barbo. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. It is Monday. Daphne, you are abroad. I am in the continental U.S. We're doing an international (laughs) podcast today, huh? That's exciting. For you. (laughs) I mean, we make it happen. We make it work, you know? We make it work. That's true. Um, (laughs) All right. What? We're still in ID. Is ID ever going to finish? Well, it is a very high-yield topic. So it's one <laughs> of the true. biggies, you know, true. and clinically, right? <laughs> yeah, we think it's all, yeah, uh, it's all sepsis or not sepsis, but there's like a lot of details in there. Yeah, for sure. For sure. You're absolutely right. Um, all right. So what are we starting with today? Parvovirus. Parvovirus. And was I assigned to review parvovirus? You were. <laughs> cool. All right. So let's talk about parvovirus. Um, so parvovirus is a virus, DNA, and, um, and it, and, uh, parvovirus specifically parvovirus B19 is specific only to human. It has an incubation period of about four to 14 days. Um, and it replicates within RBC precursors. All that stuff, not really high yield at this point. Um, the transmission is usually with direct contact with respiratory secretions. Um, and there's um, obviously maternal to fetal transmission, which is what we'll talk about in a minute. Now, in terms of the clinical symptoms of parvo, um, the majority of people are asymptomatic. Parvovirus can also lead to something that we studied in pediatrics called the fifth disease, uh, which leads to erythema infectiosum, which occurs in all the children with malaise, low-grade fever, and this sort of slap cheek, slapped cheek rash. Um, and there's usually low infection risk after the rash develops. Uh, adults may have self-limited arthralgia or arthritis, um, transient um, red blood cell aplasia, myocarditis, peripheral nerve abnormalities, and vasculitis. So let's talk a little bit about fetal infection. So fetal infections are difficult to diagnose because um, the majority are end up the, the the fetus end up being normal. There's no not really teratogenic. However, there is an increased risk of fetal losses, 2 to 6%, uh, which is greatest during uh, the first trimester. Parvovirus can actually lead to anemia in the fetus, and that in turn can lead to congestive heart failure, be, um, uh, congestive heart failure, and then high drops. I'm sorry. Um, the fetus may develop myocarditis, thrombocytopenia, neutropenia, and liver disease. So kind of what you would see also with other, with with the the torch infections. So mm-hmm. all these viruses tend to do some some similar things to the fetus and the neonate. Huh? So um, how do we make the diagnosis? Um, let's first talk about the diagnosis um, of parvovirus by maternal I, uh, immunoglobulin level. So let's talk about two kinds of immunoglobulin that we could test on the mother. We could test IgG, we could test IgM. 
Now, if the mother has a positive IgG and a negative IgM, we can conclude that this is a past infection. There's no risk to the fetus. If there's a positive IgG and a positive IgM, then we can interpret that as an infection within the last 7 to 120 days. And that really leads to a possible risk of infection to the fetus. What if we have a negative IgG and a positive IgM, then you're in the midst of an acute infection with a high risk to the fetus. If we have negative and negative, negative IgM, negative IgG, then it's a pregnant mother who's not immune and there's no signs of acute infection. And you could consider repeating this a uh, few weeks to assess if IgM do become positive if you're worried about an acute infection. Um, and so there's no risk to the fetus. Um, in order to diagnose um, a fetal uh, congenital infection, you would need to do a PCR of the amniotic fluid or fetal blood. If there is fetal or neonatal anemia, uh, you should see something that is quite peculiar where you see uh, anemia with a low reticulocyte count, which I think it's, it seems like it's something that is specific. You're like, oh, okay, great. Like, I'll know then that this is probable. But like, how many of our kids have anemia and a low retic, especially a if they're not? Them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So this is not, um, this is really not uncommon for a baby that maybe even preterm that uh, could have, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. But think about it. Yeah, it's I think not... it's probably pretty helpful for like an otherwise, quote unquote, healthy child, right? Yeah. yeah. But think about this, that we're talking about aplastic anemia. Mm -hmm. So that, that's the difference. Now, in terms of the management, so if we have a pregnant mother, then we would monitor the fetus for the development of anemia, for congestive heart failure, for possible high drops, and we would treat accordingly, um, maybe like in utero blood transfusion, we could give IVIG. Um, and then postnatally, you would check for anemia and provide supportive care. In terms of infection control, standard precautions, if the neonate um, with resolved high drops at the time of birth, there's no need for isolation. And then if we have a pregnant mother with parvo infection, contact precaution um, of amniotic fluid and fetal tissue is recommended. And so that's really it for parvo. I think the aplastic anemia, low reticulocytosis, and uh, a case of high drops in and around the time of birth, uh, prior to birth is probably the thing. Yeah, I, I think that, yeah, I think it's such an important cause of high drops um, because it's so ubiquitous, you know, that people are exposed to it. And it's funny when you think back to medical school and you're like, you know, how little pediatrics we learn in medical school, but parvovirus you learned. So that's yeah. one of those that's in the recesses back there that you can that's right. pull forward. Um, okay, next we'll do varicella zoster virus, also a DNA uh, virus, but it's a DNA herpes virus. Um, the contagion period, I think, is very important, easily testable. You should know this cold. Um, you're contagious one to two days before the onset of rash until all the lesions are crusted over. Um, the incubation period is about 10 to 21 days after contact. Um, and uh, varicella immune globulin would lengthen the incubation period to closer to 28 days. And in general, in our population, neonates often have a shorter incubation time. The typical interval from onset of rash in the mother to onset in the infant is actually 9 to 15 days, um, so shorter than the 10 to 21 days that is typical. But I think what you mentioned about the contagious aspect of it being one to two days before the onset of rash right. until the lesions are crusted is something that I've seen being tested in a lot of uh, 
in a lot of review questions. Yeah, the other next important period is the peripartum period, which we'll talk about in a second. So I think yeah. those are the two for sure highlights. Transmission, and as, as most of us know, it's respiratory droplets, con direct contact with the rash, but it can be um, transmitted transplacentally. Diagnosis is usually via PCR, um, up di up directly of the vesicular fluid or of the saliva. You can do a DFA or direct fluorescent antibody assay of the scrapings from the vesicular base. You could do a viral culture of vesicular fluid. You can do a zinc smear of the vesicles. And on the zinc smear, there's another thing in the recesses from histopath. <laughs> it shows multinucleated giant cells with inclusions. Um, and you can see varicella that IgG. That ring, that's back there. It's back there. And you can uh, identify varicella IgG antibodies. But the most uh, sensitive way to diagnose it is PCR of the vesicular fluid. So, drum roll varicella infection in pregnant women. That's what people, I think, want to hear about. It is uncommon, um, but it does happen. It's uh, previously thought to have a, a greater uh, chance of pneumonia while pregnant, but that's kind of controversial now. Um, if asymptomatic, um, exposed, and not immune, um, so never had been infected, no. Um, uh, immunization, then you would administer, not you, OB would administer <laughs> uh, a varicella zoster immune globulin to pregnant women within 72 hours of exposure. Um, but there's no evidence of this protecting the fetus. So even if you have, uh, are, you know, caring for a pregnancy where there was a maternal exposure and the mom got varicella immune globulin, um, this doesn't necessarily mean it would protect the infant. So that's, that child would still be at risk. And we know um, that uh, treatment is with oral acyclovir or valcyclovir, particularly if there's an infection in the second or third trimester, and we use IV acyclovir if there are serious complications. But I think what's really high yield for us are the next two sections, so timing of maternal infection and what does the congenital varicella syndrome look like. So... Uh, throughout gestation, uh, the risk of varicella infection in the infant changes significantly. Uh, between um, 8 and 20 weeks of gestation, um, this is a really high-risk period for transmission. Uh, it represents, though, only about 1% to 2% of congenital varicella syndrome. During the second half of pregnancy, up to 21 days prior to delivery, obviously an anticipation of a term delivery. Um, this is actually low risk of congenital varicella syndrome, but um, the infant may develop varicella zoster early in life, again, um, because the incubation uh, period takes some time. Between 10, 20 days prior to delivery up to six days before delivery, um, we may see mild symptoms. There's a little risk of severe disease. Um, but this very important time period between five days before delivery until two days after delivery is the greatest risk because there's insufficient time for uh, the protective antibodies to cross from the mother to the fetus. And there's 17% chance of acute infection. And if untreated, a 30% chance of mortality. Um, so I like to remember, so people are like, well, how do I remember the time period? <laughs> I like to remember that 
varicella. You have the V up front and two L's near the end. So the V is the five, five days before delivery, and your two L's two days after delivery. So you know that there's a time period associated with varicella, and it's five. And that's the and greatest two. risk. The greatest risk of transmission to the fetus is during five that time. days before delivery until two days after. I love that mnemonic. That's so <laughs> good. Um, and then again, the other next highest risk time is between early, early in the you know uh, pregnancy, eight to twenty weeks of. Because they look like Roman numerals, like That's you have exactly the, v and the right. two ones, the, the five and the two. That's right. And it's not one of those mnemonics where it's like you know what this is. Then the opposite is what the mnemonic right. is supposed to be. It's great. <laughs> the highest risk is what's in the word. It's V and two. Love it. Ah, oh, so good. You didn't know that one. No. I love it when I can teach you. You see, that's the, that's the, the thing of studying alone for the boards. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. right. Or, or, or right. The benefit of studying with other people. You get twi twice, three times as many mnemonics. So That's right. <laughs> Sometimes you can't remember, though, which mnemonic was which, right? But that's, yeah. the, that's the rest. But if they're good, if they're good, they stick. <laughs> so congenital varicella syndrome, again, uh, I think this is another high-yield point. There is a low incidence. Um, it's most common if the maternal infection is during the first 20 weeks of gestation. So just to go back to the previous section, the highest risk of transmission uh, of varicella infection is between that five days before delivery until two days after delivery. But the quote-unquote congenital varicella syndrome um, happens early in pregnancy during that uh, eight and 20 weeks. Um, it could occur even if there's mild maternal infection um, and can present with mild to severe neonatal disease. Um, and it presents usually less than 10 days of age because, again, the exposure um, happened early. So a lot of these babies have um, presenting features even at the time of delivery, even in the preterm infant. So some of the major findings are these cutaneous lesions. Uh, uh, I don't know how to say it in English, but it's this cicatricial lesions. In Spanish, it's a cicatriz. It's a scar. So that's what, what helps you remember that it's these kind of scarring uh, or segmental lesions along the dermatomes. So they're not like, they don't look like active uh, rash um, because they're these long-term scars. You can have limb abnormalities, which could be quite severe, limb atrophy, uh, typically distal uh, to these cutaneous lesions. You can have eye abnormalities, cataracts, chorioretinitis, severe mental deficiencies, seizures, intracranial calcifications, pneumonia, encephalopathy, hepatitis, um, and uh, there is uh, a high risk of uh, mortality in these babies, so possible early death. Yeah, I don't know how to say that word. I mean, it's, it's cicatrice in French as well. <laughs> That's right. But <laughs> The romance language, it's all the same, but... I'm, I'm now you'll venture. remember, everybody will remember, it just means these scarred, <laughs> scarring lesions. Scarring, the scarring, that's good. Scar so management, um, the vaccine uh, is Verivax. Um, it's a live attenuated vaccine. Um, it's usually given prior to pregnancy to mothers, protects about 85%. Um, the varicella zoster immune globulin um, is an IgG immune globulin, and if administered less than five days um, from maternal exposure, um, 
it modifies the symptoms but does not necessarily prevent infection. It's ideal if we can get it in less than three days post-exposures. And these are the in, in indications for varicella, zoster, and immunoglobulin. So an infant with a mother who develops varicella between the five days prior to delivery and two days after delivery, those babies get varicella immune globulin. If you have a preterm infant that's greater than or equal to 28 weeks gestation with a significant exposure and a mother without history of chickenpox and or is zero negative, so this is a baby you'd think um, does not have antibody protection, they would get varicella immune globulin. So what is an example of this? Like uh, the mother gets it postpartum or somebody in the unit, we've seen this happen, um, a nurse, a therapist, another parent um, comes in with concern for chicken pox and you may have to, you may find yourself vaccinating lots of um, or giving immune globulin to lots of babies. So the preterm infant greater than equal greater than or equal to 28 weeks if significant exposure, the preterm infant less than 28 weeks gestation or less than or equal to 1,000 grams if significant exposure regardless of maternal history um, because it's felt that in this, in this very preterm population there's inadequate maternal antibody protection. If the infant is exposed postnatally between two to seven days of age, low risk, you would consider varicella immune globulin. If you have a term healthy infant exposed postnatally, low risk, uh, varicella immune globulin is actually not recommended. Um, but again, varicella immune globulin should be considered if the newborn is exposed within the first two weeks after birth to a mother without immunity to varicella. Um, if you don't have varicella immune globulin, you could consider IVIG or acyclovir or valcyclovir. The infection control, standard precautions, as well as airborne and contact precautions. So the whole getup for a neonate born to a mother with varicella. And you would continue until 21 days of age or 28 days of age um, if, if uh, varicella immune globulin is, was administered because, as you recall, that would prolong the incubation period. You would isolate the mother from the infant if there are active lesions at delivery. And infants with this varicella embryopathy do not need to be placed in isolation if they do not have active lesions because, again, that indicates that the exposure was um, kind of remote from delivery, uh, happened early uh, during pregnancy, and so the infectious risk um, is gone. If the mother um, has lesions less than five days prior to delivery and less than two days after delivery, then the infant would get varicella immune globulin and would be isolated until the maternal lesions are crusted over and not felt to be infectious. Now, if the mother is status post varicella, so hold on. So, like uh -huh. the last thing you said, so that wouldn't that you mean that like if they're not in that higher highest risk period, if the mother has lesions less than five days prior to delivery. And less than two days. No, it's so then it's they would be within the high risk. It's period. during the high right. risk. Okay, that makes sense. I'm sorry. So yeah, that's the high. That's really the high, the highest risk situation. Yeah, yeah. So the baby would get varicella immune globulin, and you would isolate until the lesions are crusted. Mm -hmm. uh, now, if the mother is status post varicella and the lesions are all healed, there's no isolation of the mother from the infant, but you would potentially isolate the infant from other infants around the time of delivery. So that may impact your unit <laughs> your unit placement okay so Hit the big me. things to remember the high yeah. risk times 
uh, five days before delivery until two days after delivery. Uh, what does the congenital varicella syndrome look like? And that they're contagious one to two days before the onset of rash until all lesions are crusted over. Okay. Are you ready? I'm, I don't know. Go ahead. We'll okay. find out. <laughs> this is actually neurology question six. In evaluating a term newborn, the neonatologist observes bilateral leukocoria. There's no evidence of hepatosplenomegaly, microcephaly, intrauterine growth restriction, or congenital heart disease. Audiologic evaluation reveals a severe hearing impairment. Of the following, this con the congenital infection that is most likely responsible for the findings in this infant are A, cytomegalovirus, B, rubella, C, syphilis, D, toxoplasmosis, or E, varicella. Okay. Um, I don't have it. You said it's question 19? Six. <laughs> oh, God. Okay, six. Because I, I, I don't, I'm, I feel bad every time I'm asking you to repeat the question just because I haven't pulled up the, because I haven't pulled up the thing. But I can very much pull up the thing. Okay. The term newborn, okay, term, leukocoria. Fine. Mm -hmm. No evidence of hepatosplenomegaly. And no hepatosplenomegaly. No microcephaly. Mm -hmm. I, no IUGR. Or no congenital heart disease. But severe hearing impairment. Which one of them is the most likely? Bilateral leukocoria huh. and hearing impairment. My, my initial, see, it's interesting, right? Because it's like hearing impairment, I'm like, boom, CMV, right? But the leukocoria is tricky. The leukocoria, I think, is, uh, is not to be overlooked. I'm not going to say CMV. Uh, I don't think it's, uh, I'm going to say the one that I had, leukocoria, rubella. I'm going to say B, rubella. Very good. That means you've learned this because you know I have your old review book and <laughs> this question book, and you previously answered cytomegalovirus. So look at you. I appreciate uh, you sharing my history. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> but that's a good reminder for people who are taking, who are doing the practice questions. And you're like, I'm getting them wrong. But getting them wrong is part of the process, right? That's how you are learning the answers. I've but the point is, it doesn't matter if the question's wrong. If the question's wrong during studying, it's that's right. But <laughs> as long as you learn. So, yeah. uh, the answer was rubella. I tricked you because we haven't spoken about rubella yet. I know. Um, so, an obvious answer <laughs> choice would have been varicella. But it's really, like you said, the bilateral leukocoria. Uh, leukocoria is most likely the result of bilateral cataracts. And the most common infectious cause of congenital cataracts is rubella. So if you see bilateral cataracts and they're asking you about the torch infection, you, could, you should think of rubella. Um, and of course, we do see hearing loss with rubella. CMV and toxoplasmosis infection can cause hearing impairments, um, but are usually associated with chorioretinitis not cataracts. And that seems like a small detail, but uh, those different ocular findings um, are really high yield. Um, so I mm. will say that again, CMV and toxo um, are associated with chorioretinitis, not cataracts. Congenital That's syphilis right. rarely causes ocular or hearing impairment, um, and congenital varicella is unlikely to produce cataracts, but can, can have some hearing impairment. Yeah, and it's hard for us because we don't like what is chorioretinitis, right? I mean, it's something that you see right. on, on ophthalmology exam. So it's like, it's not like you're telling me that the baby has uh, cutest aplasia. It's like, yeah, I know right. what it looks like. I know I've what seen. that looks like. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. All right, buddy. I'll see you tomorrow. 
Okay, sounds good. For more ID. <laughs> all week, all week. All week. Thank Let's you for listening to this episode of the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. If you like our show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We would love to hear from you, so please feel free to reach out to Daphne and I via email by sending your messages to nikupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Twitter at nikupodcast. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.